Tonight on the Best of Art Bell, Chancellor Broadcasting presents Classic Art Bell. We reach deep into the archives to 1993 for an all-time favorite show. Three hours of Art's fascinating and captivating interview with Al Bielik, who details his personal experience with the Philadelphia Experiment. The show is from deep, deep, deep in the archives before a lot of our technological upgrades. So the show audio isn't the greatest, but the story is, and we're letting it slide. And on the final two hours from 1994, we've dug out Preston Nichols, who tells his story of the Montauk Experiment, a follow-up to the Philadelphia Experiment. Three hours with Al Bielik, two hours with Preston Nichols. That's all tonight, Friday night, Saturday morning, on this, the best of Art Bell. From the Kingdom of Nye. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the CBC Radio Network. Without any more delay, let's go talk with Mr. Bielik in uh, Phoenix. And uh, good morning, uh, Alfred Bielik. Yes. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. I, uh, I almost don't know where to start. I guess the best thing to do is first find out about you, uh, whatever we can. What is your background, uh, Alfred? Well, my background as uh, Al Bielik is that I was an electronic engineer. That's yeah, from for 30 years, from 1958 to 88, but that had no bearing whatever on the Philadelphia Experiment and my history with that. The history for the Philadelphia Experiment involving not only the USS Eldridge, but some earlier ships and experimentation goes back a long ways. Actually goes back to 1931, when the first experimental considerations of the possibility of making an object invisible were engaged by Dr. Nikola Tesla, Dr. John Hutchinson of the University of Chicago, and a staff physicist by the name of Dr. Emil Curtinauer, all of whom were at that time at the University of Chicago. Tesla was a man who got around quite a bit, and unlike the uh, stories which have been told about him being a recluse in his little room in the Hotel New York over the last 12 years of his life, that was anything but true. He was very busy, perhaps busier the last 12 years of his life than in the previous period. But these three people <clears throat> were involved in the consideration of how do you make an object invisible. And this was what we would today call a feasibility study, and this took place at the University of Chicago for about three years. And at that time, it was moved to the then rather brand new Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was a think tank, if you will, and it was perhaps the premier think tank of the world. Because the initial staffing, which started in 1933, involved people like Dr. John von Neumann, Albert Einstein, Dr. Alexander, and Dr. Oswald Fablin. They were the four original staff members, and many other people came on board at uh, various times after that. Tesla worked with them at the Institute, but he was never a staff member. He was one of the people who came and went, if you will. He was still maintaining a lot of other experimental work, a lot of other jobs he was doing. He was, in fact, a member of the team of RCA Corporation from the day of its inception in 1919 until he retired in 1939. In the last four years of his life, he was vice president and director of engineering worldwide for RCA Corporation. It's not a fact that is well known. In fact, it is rather uh, well, shall we say, swept under the rug. Because various interests don't want the public to know the position that Tesla actually held. Al, um, a lot of the fictional accounts of invisibility uh, from the Invisible Man, which is a fairly recent movie, 
to the Philadelphia Experiment and a number of others, all seem to um, uh, deal with um, a very um, high-energy electromagnetic fields. That's, that is correct. The original work uh, involved electromagnetics, but it's actually electromagnetics going beyond the range of electromagnetics. Now, in the work, when they transferred it to the Institute in 34, went onward. In 36, they had an experimental test, which is partly successful, but anything but fully successful. Gave them an idea of the fact that they were in the least going in the right direction. And by 1940, now the Navy, in the meantime, had funded this project almost from the beginning with some uh, research funds from the Office of Naval Engineering. Uh, they, they were interested from a defense point of view, obviously. That's correct. Yeah. That is their the object. And uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was very interested in this project from the beginning because Tesla was an old friend of his. And that friendship goes back to World War I in 1917 when Roosevelt, then Undersecretary of the Navy, invited Tesla to do some work, uh, war work for the government, which Tesla readily agreed to do. Tesla was, among other things, a patriot. He didn't believe in this country very strongly, and he did a great deal of work for the government. And then when the war was over, he became part of the new organization of RCA. There's a great deal of history for Tesla, which I could go into, but it's not germane, really, to the subject. In any case, they went onward with the research work, and by 1940, they had a fully successful test at the Brooklyn Navy Yard involving a small Navy ship, a tender, and there were two ships adjacent, one starboard, one port, which carried most of the heavy equipment. And the balance of the equipment, their special coils and the antenna, were installed on the ship, which was to be made invisible. And the important point of that test was while it was completely successful, there were no personnel on board. It was completely deserted insofar as any uh, people, nah, any personnel of any kind. So they made a smaller ship disappear in when, 1940? 1940. Uh, late in the year, <clears throat> was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And with that test, they knew that they had a successful system. Everyone was elated, including the Navy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and of course, they immediately classified the project. Up to that point, it was an open research project conducted by the Institute of Advanced Study. It was not classified, and it was purely <clears throat> research uh, conducted by the Institute with some Navy backing, Navy funds. Now, Tesla was named the original director by Roosevelt in 1934. And Tesla remained director for this project hmm. until 19, well, March of 1942. Now, there's a lot more history in here, and I'm going to have to fill in and uh, let you know how I got involved in this thing. All right. It was not born Al Bielek. It was born Edward Cameron, and that was in August 4th, 1916, Somewhat at variance with my birth certificate is Al Bielek, which says I was born in March of 1927. Hmm. I was actually born in 1916. My father was Alexander Duncan Cameron Sr., who was a Navy man. And he went into the Navy, since we can't find any records to show when he went in and when he went left, estimated in 1910, because he was born in 1891. Why, why is there this disparity in your birth certificate and your real age and real name? Well, you have to get into the rest of the story to understand why. Now, there was no secret about my history at that time, up through that entire period. Nor, nor my brother, who was Duncan Cameron, who was born about seven months after I was. Same father, different mother. Father was a, shall we say, a ladies' man. And uh, he had uh, quite a few under his wing. Two uh, common law marriages at that time. 
first two wars were not legal, but from that point on they were legal. In any case, 1917, the war became a hot issue. He was called by the Navy to go to sea, and he abandoned the two women, and uh, we were both raised by Auntie Cameron in Long Island. Auntie Arnold, actually, was her name, married. And uh, we never saw father except maybe once a year. Mm-hmm. We both uh, had uh, the advantage of a family with money and a social position, and we were admonished by father to go get a good education, which in the Depression years, of course, was probably the appropriate thing to do because there wasn't much else to do. Sure. So we did. We both acquired an education in physics, a Ph.D. I first went to Princeton, then I was transferred to Harvard at Dr. von Neumann's suggestion because I met him at Princeton. Took a Ph.D. from Harvard in the summer of 39, and my brother Duncan from the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland, and also the summer of 1939. By father's insistence on arrangement, we both joined the Navy in September 1939. So you you have a Ph.D. in physics? Under the name of Edward Cameron. I see. Not as Al Bielek. I have to stress that because of what happened later. So we both joined the Navy. We were given, uh, shall we say, the 90-day wonder school treatment by the Navy for officers who were for special assignment. We were given commissions upon enlistment mm-hmm. at Lieutenant J.G., which was quite standard at that time. And then in January 1940, we were assigned to the Institute, the Institute of Advanced Study, where we were brought up to speed on the project. We didn't know really what we were going to be assigned to, but we knew we were going to be on some special project. And that's how we became, both Duncan, my brother, and myself, became involved in the Philadelphia Experiment. It was not called the Philadelphia Experiment in the early stage. It was still known as Project Invisibility. Hmm. Uh, it's correct name under the <clears throat> code name given by the Navy when they classified it was Project Rainbow. So we were brought on board at the Institute here in 1940 in January. And then they had the test in September. And then it was when they classified it and it became Project Rainbow. It was still Project Invisibility when we joined. Now, after that, they set up offices in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Of course, they had a lot of space there. And the classified aspects of this project there were continued at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And, of course, the project was also still continued at the Institute in uh, Princeton, on the Princeton grounds. And the Institute was not part of the university. It was on university property. But it was a totally separate entity. All right. And a separate control, separate financing, and the whole nine yards. It was a separate entity. So the project was ongoing. And with the successful test, Roosevelt told Tesma he was giving him a somewhat larger ship to make invisible, literally a battleship. And he said to Tesla, if you can make that invisible, you can make anything invisible. So we proceeded to prepare for this. We had a water equipment do a lot of further work, and I might add that this, at that time, Tesla was, up until 1939, still involved with RCA, and he only showed up in the project maybe once a week. I did meet him a couple of times, and uh, he was ongoing still with his other lab research and lab work. I mean, he had not been a recluse by any means. I'll give you a quick thumbnail of what he had done in the period from 1931 onward, when he was the alleged recluse twiddling his thumbs in a hotel room. In 1931, he had successfully produced a source of, uh, shall we say, free power 
which was successful enough that he converted a Pearsarrow automobile to an electric drive with a 75-horse motor under the hood and a little black box he carried around with him, plugged into the dashboard when he wanted to go somewhere and demonstrate this car and its feasibility. Mm-hmm. Drove all over New York City, much to the elation of the press, and there was a lot of press coverage at the time. Eventually drove upstate New York and all over New York State, and eventually the car was abandoned somewhere, as I do not know the history of what happened to the car. He was also working on uh, such things as particle beam weapon systems. He had a successful one by 1935. Al, I've heard uh, a lot of this uh, about Tesla, and I've always wondered if Tesla had all of this incredible technology developed then, Yes. what happened to it? In other words, what ha- happened to the documentation? He was a scientist. I presume he documented his work. Early. Why is it all lost, Al? It's not lost. It was, shall we say, swept under the rug here in the U.S. after he died. It was not lost at that time. He still had his laboratory going. He was in communication with other governments and scientists all over the world. The particle beam weapon system is quite curious in itself. He offered it to the United States. It went through a uh, process known as a military board of review. And uh, they were, at first, in favor of it, but the final vote uh, cast it out. They were not, in terms of the final vote on it, interested. Well, that's Star Wars today. What I was saying about Tesla and the particle beam weapon system, he offered it to Canada at that time in 35, approximately, and they turned it down. It was offered to England not once, but many times, from 35 to 39, they turned it down. And they offered it to Russia in 1935, and they bought it. Uh, this is not well known, but they bought a working model and a U.S. consultancy for $25,000 cash. And a friend of mine here in Phoenix who had access to the Russian embassy in recent years found, he checked that story himself, and they, and the Russians admitted that yes, they did purchase the working model from Tesla in 1935, but it was lost during the war years with all the bombing, the shelling, and everything else that went on during the war years. Now, how was enough energy uh, available at that time prior to nuclear power for a particle beam weapon? Well, it doesn't use that much power. It used high voltage, 200 million volts for a full-scale system, uh, lesser voltage for a smaller system. It did not require high power. It required high voltage and a relatively minor amount of power because the output tube, which I've seen and do have photos, or should say sketches from, or working sketches from his notes, showed a continuously evacuated tube, uh, which was evacuated on a continuously pumped basis, because it had to have an open end for the discharge of the particle beam, and uh, the full-scale system would have required 200 million volts, the model's much lower, but the voltage was a very low current. All right, you say continually evacuated. Uh, I understand particle beam weapons are much more effective in space. Where oh, this not... was intended for ground use on the surface. Right. In space, they don't have that problem. That's very true. In any case, that was only one of the things he worked on. He also worked on a death ray system demonstrated in 1938-39 at White Sands Proving Grounds. And a friend had those notes for a number of years till they were taken shall we say, by the government, found out he had them in private uh, holding, and they were removed. Now, he left RCA, then had more time to spend on this project and his own laboratory work, because he was still very active. And uh, in 1940, the successful test, and then he went on to prepare the battleship for a test at a later date. Now, in 1941... Uh, the Navy tapped Duncan and myself on the shoulder and said, it's time you find out what the Navy's about and sent us to sea for a year. It wasn't exactly a year. It was on the USS Pennsylvania. 
And from January of 41 until approximately October, we were all over the Pacific. And then the Pennsylvania came into dry dock for overhaul in Pearl Harbor. And that's a matter of public record anyone can check. And we were on liberty and leave. We went to San Francisco on July, I'm sorry, December 5th. We were uh, to return to Pearl Harbor. We're about to board a plane at a naval air station in Alameda. And we were stopped. Naval captain said, your orders are canceled. We were taken to a room and we were interviewed by then director of the Office of Naval Engineering, Hal Bowen Sr., who told us that we expect the Japanese will attack Pearl Harbor within 48 to 72 hours. We consider you people to be too valuable to send back there, so stay in San Francisco, which we did. And we returned to the Institute in 1942, and of course, Pearl Harbor on December 7th is history. Now, we returned to the project, and preparations were well underway and nearly complete for the battleship test. And Tesla was having considerable misgivings about it at that time. He knew because of the extremely high power required, electromagnetic power, that there could be damage to dead sailors because the equipment was going to be on the deck and the rotating fields were very powerful, and any personnel on deck would be exposed to them, and he expected there would be serious problems. And there's a good cliffhanger point. I've got an additional quick break and a couple of them coming up here, so stand by just one sec, Al. The Philadelphia Experiment's what we're talking about. Al Bielik is my guest. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Art Bell. My guest, Al Felix, uh, in Phoenix of the Philadelphia experiment. We're getting up to it now. Um, Al, you say that Tesla was having misgivings. I want to stop and ask you for a second about, um, uh, about electromagnetic fields. I, I have a bad back, Al, and I had an MRI once, and I had a demonstration by the technician of the strength of the, uh, uh, the magnetic field, and it was quite incredible, very strong. And yet, other than being able to see inside my body, there was no measurable uh, effect. Now, in, in suddenly, in our modern society, we're all of a sudden beginning to say, well, maybe there is an effect on the biological human being from electromagnetic fields, you know, the, all the controversy about the power lines and all the rest of it. So apparently, there may be something. But I always thought magnetics, uh, as a general rule, didn't have any effect at all on, a, on, a, on flesh and blood. Well, if it's a DC field, you will find a little or no effect. Uh -huh. uh, the problem is, if it's an AC field at certain critical window frequencies, these have been charted, of course, since that day and that period. <clears throat> the information is well known now. There are critical window frequencies which affect the brain directly because the brain is affected and is receptive to magnetic frequencies or modulation in the magnetic domain. But, but only uh, alternating current. To... That is correct. An alternating field or even a pulsed field with, of course, the uh, Fourier series of uh, frequencies, harmonics, which uh, attain to a pulsed train, you have the same problem. Of course, a pulsed output or a square wave output, you have many more frequencies than the fundamental. Absolutely. Now, that was only part of the problem. The other aspect is that high-frequency electric fields, that is RF fields, will also affect the body and the brain if it's at the right frequencies. The Japanese did a lot of work on this during World War II. Oh, no, absolutely. In fact, uh, at high enough frequencies, you literally cook as you would in a microwave oven. Very true. And even without cooking, 
you have frequencies which will affect the mind and the brain. Mm -hmm. And the effect on the neurological system is not at the level of uh, RF heating, which was the old standard in the United States. The Russians long since have learned better, and of course they do know better here now, but the standard used to be one-tenth of a watt or 100 milliwatts per square inch was considered the threshold of heating of human tissue, and that was considered the danger point, and no consideration was given to the biological effects of much weaker fields. Uh, over long term as well. Uh, long term or short term, the window frequency short term. Now that, of course, is modern data, and it's all a result of the Philadelphia experiment and with the aftermath and all of the studies that were made. I don't want to get too technical on everybody, Al, uh, but I would be interested, what kind of frequency range are you talking about when you say window frequencies? Window frequencies in terms of the human brain and magnetic response, you're dealing in frequencies typically below 30 hertz. Oh, very low frequencies, then. That's correct, ELF. Oh, I'll be darned. And I thought you were going to say just the opposite. I thought you were going to talk about one gigahertz and up. No, RF, you will talk oh. about high frequencies in the range of uh, well, the spinal resonance around 450 megahertz. The uh, brain cavity resonance is somewhere, depending on the size of the cavity of the human head, anywhere from roughly 850 to 1,000 megahertz mm -hmm. or one gigahertz which also gets into the range of the cellular phone and the problem. I was just about to say that. These people holding these cellular phones up uh, ought to perhaps think better of it. One, one second, Al. Stand by. Uh-huh. Fascinating. We'll be right back. You are listening to the best of Art Bell. From the Kingdom of Nine, Coast to Coast AM continues with Art Bell. Top of the morning, everybody. Al Bielik in Phoenix is uh, with us again, Al. Uh, that's just a little break for other stations to join the net. All right, Al. Um, that's an old side issue, but uh, that comes into play when one uh, considers the final results of the test on the average. But let's go back to the basic story here. Tesla was concerned because he knew that with the amount of power that was involved that there would be serious problems with Navy personnel. He went to the Navy and asked for an extension of time. He says he was certain he could solve the problem, but he needed more time. And of course, he received the usual answer at that time was, there's a war on, you've got a test date and meet it. <laughs> so he had the choice of going ahead and uh, hoping for the best or as he did choose, sabotage the test, detune the equipment so nothing happened and nobody was hurt. And, of course, he at that point... Was that was the first test, Al, on the, on the big ship? That was the first test of a big ship. And he detuned the equipment, actually took it off frequency so it wouldn't happen? That's correct. He deliberately sabotaged the test. I'll be darned. No one was hurt. And, of course, that altered his historic record of having an impeccable history of never failing on any project. So he did on that one, and he bowed out and says, uh, the test is a failure, gentlemen. I have other things to do. I'm leaving this project. Well, the question is whether he left voluntarily or had a little assistance from the Navy. It doesn't matter. He left the project. And it was not very long after that, since this was March 42, in uh, January of 1943, he died. And that was on the 7th of January. But he was separated from the project at that point and turned it over to Dr. John von Neumann, who then became the director. 
And when Neumann looked at the projects, told the Navy, I'll have to look and see what went wrong. It didn't take him long to find out what was wrong, but he decided to avail himself of the time and redesign the equipment. Mm-hmm. And he went, unlike uh, Tesla, who was an analog man, liked to use continuous waves with special modulation waveforms, von Neumann was a man who liked to do pulsed work. In other words, pulse the system uh, with energy. As you would radar. As you would radar, exactly. Uh-huh. Sure. And uh, he decided to redesign the equipment for that. The basic mathematics, the basic approach was still the same. And the basic approach involved rotating fields, a rotating magnetic field outside of a rotating electric field, uh, both counterclockwise. And the equipment design involved some changes, and particularly upping the power. Uh, Von Neumann went up to a 2-megawatt power output with a booster on each RF transmitter. Uh, I, I can't say a standard AM transmitter, but a standard transmitter of the day, which they were pushing the state of the arc because the output was 160 megahertz, which was high frequency in those days, but definitely within the realm of uh, capability because radar was functional in those days, and they were running a still higher frequency. You say 160 megahertz? Right, at 2 megawatts. Oh my gosh, uh, that's a VHF frequency typically used by uh, two way communications. Police are a little lower, uh, but it's in that area. But those days it was in the radar range because you didn't go to 400 megahertz range until, for radar until the war was over. Right. And uh, <clears throat> that was insofar as the RF transmitters were concerned, four of them feeding a special quadrophase antenna. And I'm speaking of the final design for the overage. Uh, which was the antenna was designed by T. Townsend Brown. He had been pulled into the Navy in 1938 to work on another problem, namely the German magnetic mines. But he was also an RF man, and he made contributions to the project. Now, in the redesign by von Neumann, he decided that he wanted a ship which was designed from the ground up for these tests. Mm-hmm. So this was... Uh, Roughly in the spring months of 1942, and about roughly July, he went to the uh, Newark shipbuilding yards, which were not far from Philadelphia, picked a number off the drawing board, DE-173, and gave instructions how he wanted the ship modified. Namely, it would not con- uh, completely complete and finish the interior of the ship. We would leave it gutted, put two rails along the bottom, and leave gun turret number two unfinished so they could drop the heavy equipment in. In the case of the battleship and trying to outfit it without uh, designing it from the ground up, the heavy equipment was on the deck. So he wanted the two large generators for the four Tesla coils mm-hmm. buried in the guts of the ship. They were 75 kVA each, driven by a 750-horsepower motor with two right-angle gearbox drives, and that's some pretty heavy equipment. Yes, it is. And that went in the hold of the ship, along with the diesel-electric generator supply power for this system, which was totally separate from ship's power. And that was an 8-megawatt monster. So they had some heavy equipment in the hold. And the ship came down the ways in September of 42, went into dry dock. They put the heavy equipment in board the ship. And then in September, I'm sorry, December of 42, the ship, under its own power, went to the uh, Philadelphia Navy Yard in the interior section, which was a classified work, and the rest of the electronic equipment was installed. Uh, I, w- I wish to stop you for a second so that I can understand the um, the layout of the fields again. You've got an RF field, uh, I take it first. Yes, and a special mast midships on top of the highest mast of the ship. 
and this produced a rotating electric field because of the design of the rest of the electronic equipment. Right. And the field was provided by four transmitters, each were pulsed at special pulse rates, which is part of the whole system, and a lot of electronics which preceded it. Now, in addition to that, you had four large conical Tesla coils. When I say a Tesla coil, not the full-blown type, which one is familiar with today with a primary and a secondary. Right. But a single coil, which was wound in a conical shape, narrow at the top, wide at the base. There was one inch, essentially one inch copper tubing, hollow and cooled. And it was a single turn, like a spiral, expanding, and was fed at the top and the bottom from cables from the generator. They had two large generators, two outputs from each generator, and these were phased <clears throat> due to the rest of the electronic equipment so that you had a rotating magnetic field because of the phasing of the, of the uh, generators and the associated electronics. So these four coils were placed on the deck of the Eldridge, two forward, two aft, right. and of course there were two in starboard and two port, and they were symmetrically arranged around the antenna. Okay. And they were driven with very high-powered current pulses. And there was a certain rate, approximately a 10% duty cycle, and frequency so that you wound up with a rotating magnetic field. Now, this rotating field was outside of the electric field, in essence. And without getting too technical on this... Was the R... I'm still trying to understand. I'm sorry, Al, don't mean to interrupt. Was the RF field... Rotating, or was it a constant output? Oh, they were both rotating. They were both rotating. At different frequencies. At different frequencies, and not, not, in, not in synchronization, other... They were in synchronization, essentially, yes, because, well, one was twice the rate of the other. All right. They were both tied, mathematically speaking, in terms of the rotating rate, to what is a fundamental number for everything on this planet, namely pi over two. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, I think I finally understand. Okay. Now, this, of course, was in the final embodiment of the equipment. Uh, the ship had to be outfitted with the electronic equipment and everything that went with it. Duncan and I were back on the project, of course, from uh, January 42 onward. And uh, <clears throat> we saw the failure of the battleship test. We saw the whole procedure for the development of the Eldridge, which at that time was not called the Eldridge, it was just a number, DE-173. It had not become the Eldridge until it was christened, which was in August of 43. Mm-hmm. Now, with the uh, outfitting of the ship, and there, were, there was a lot of testing and uh, some other problems, of course, they never tested the full system until it was out in the harbor. They also went through the Navy and decided, the Norman decided the Navy concurred to have a special volunteer test crew for these tests, all volunteer. How many were aboard totally? In the final test, there was 15 sailors and about six officers for the test, and each of the two tests with the Eldridge. Fifteen sailors and how many officers? Six. Six officers, okay. And that was two officers. Two of them were included, Duncan and myself. Right. As we were trained to run the equipment in the hold, actually, which was a control room on the surface of the ship, behind steel doors and steel bulkheads. So you weren't able to see out onto deck? No, not with the bulkhead door closed, which was a normal procedure while operating the equipment. Right. So in any case, a lot of preliminary tests preceding the final test, and von Neumann started to get the shakes about the personnel problem himself about, oh, roughly March of 1943. Mm-hmm. And he decided to add a third generator to try and produce a counterfield. 
and that never worked. It could never be synchronized with the other two. The other two required very special electronic... What, what was the purpose of the counterfield? To provide some kind of protection in von Neumann's mind to the effects of the other main field to the personnel. The system never worked. It only succeeded in zapping a technician who was working with us in the control room. He was going to try and nullify the field in a certain area. Correct. It didn't work, and he consequently abandoned the uh, approach for the third generator, went back to the two-generator approach, and uh, was essentially ready for tests in July of 1943. Now, all this equipment was aboard the Yardbirds. There were preliminary sectional tests, and we were thoroughly instructed in what was to be done and how the procedure was, because you have to understand in those days there were no computers. Right. The computer was invented by von Neumann, but at a later date, after the war was over. And everything was manually run, so that the concern at that time was to produce a field of invisibility, which would be both optical and caused by 43. We had very good radar. It was developed in the years prior to the war, but it was almost uh, unknown until 1941-42. So invisible optically and to radar. And to radar. That's only an extension of uh, one of the other because the optical high frequencies are much higher electromagnetic frequency range than radar. Mm-hmm. Radar in those days was running around 160 to 200 megahertz. So the final test was the first test, not final, was decided to be held on the 20th of July. They scrubbed it till the 22nd, and then they held it in the harbor of Philadelphia. There was an observer ship uh, with a man running the test. The man in charge of it was a Captain Harrison, now dead. And, of course, on that ship was Van Neumann and other scientists and other Navy personnel. It was a carrier as the observer. So he was at least confident enough to be on board during it himself. He was on board the observer ship. Not oh, 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 I said then he wasn't. <laughs> he was not on the Eldridge. I see. No, the only people on the Eldridge are those who were involved directly in the test, which included Duncan and myself. Did they advise you of the danger of what you were about to do? No. No? No, they did not. There was no allusion to there being any real danger, but there was <clears throat> allusion to the fact that there could be problems. And Van Neumann did not expect any kind of a serious problem. Uh, in case of, for those who have saw, seen the movie, where they saw these banks and banks of electron tubes, that was quite accurate, except for one thing. In the movie version, they showed miniature tubes. In the real version, they were using 6L6s in the large glass bulb size. 6L6s? Yes. And I know about a 6L6. That was the first tube I used in my first ham transmitter. <laughs> it was commonly used for many years, that's true. With a 6AG7 driver. Right. <laughs> 6L6s were used to drive the field coils of the generators, 3,000 of them. Wow. Uh, there was actually 300 per field coil. There were five field coils on each generator. Don't ask me why that configuration was chosen. I couldn't answer that one. I, I'm very impressed, Al, with your ability to describe the technical aspect of this. I'm very pleased about that. I know a lot of people in the audience won't understand it, but I'm understanding what you're saying, and uh, you're, you're very impressive. So on the 22nd of July, they were ready for a test, and we were out in the harbor, and we received command by radio to the radio operator to proceed with the test, so we fired up the equipment in the appropriate uh, order. And they ran the test for about 20 minutes. And the ship was invisible to the eye other than for a slight haze in the area where the ship was. 
It was actually in the water, and it was totally invisible to radar. It just faded right off the radar screen. Did that invisibility occur instantly, or did it sort of phase in slowly, or how did it... Phased in slowly. It did not occur instantly. All right. How would you be able to confine the field... Um, to precisely to the, uh, the the mass of the ship, Al, or did you actually take some some seawater with you? You took some seawater with you. Ah. That became the concern of Captain Harrison because he saw a large waterline, much larger than the ship, and from his viewpoint on the deck of the carrier, looking with a pair of binoculars, all he could see was a big hole under the ship, and it appeared like the ship was floating in air. That is, there was a big gap there. He couldn't see the ship, but he could see that the, he knew the outline of the ship where it should be, and the waterline <clears throat> was much larger than the ship, and he couldn't see the bottom, so to speak, where the water was. It was a fairly deep section of the harbor. Wow. And he became very concerned that maybe the ship was floating in air. It wasn't. But the, to all appearances, sure. there was air there, and he was afraid because of the way the ship was put together with the gutted interior that the thing would break in half without water support. So he ordered the test terminated after 20 minutes. Well, let's let's go to you for a moment. What were you? What was your job? What were you doing? Uh, and Duncan were running the equipment. In other words, we had the dual responsibility, not only of turning the equipment on in proper sequence, checking the meters knowing what the basic physics involved was, but also in case something went wrong, we had to diagnose what might have gone wrong and, if necessary, shut the equipment off. All right, now a dumb question, and then we've got to take a break. Right. Once the invisibility occurred, uh, or, or, or that effect began, as you looked at your own hand, what did you see? My hand. You see, the effect was not on board the ship. As you, as you look... Oh, I see, so... Ship. And as you looked at, at anything in the ship, it too appeared as normal? Internally to the ship and to anyone on the deck, the ship appeared essentially normal, except for one factor. There was a heavy haze around the ship, and that heavy haze was ozone gas, which was generated by these fields. Ozone. Well, Al, what I'm going to ask you when we come back in a moment, I'm going to take a quick break, is where that ship went. Uh, stand, stand by right there. We'll be right back to you. Al Bielek is my guest. Wow. The Philadelphia Experiment, brought back to life for you this morning. We'll find out more. From the Kingdom of Nye, Coast to Coast AM continues with Art Bell. Al Bielik is my guest from Phoenix. He was there. He operated some of the equipment. And I'm very impressed with the uh, technical um, aspects of this. And I hope that uh, the gla- eyes are not glazing um, out there over some of the technical details. But... Uh, the devil is in the details, and I have never had somebody uh, as competent to discuss the technical details of something as incredible as this, and Al Belix doing it very well. Al, are you still there? Yes. Good. Um, so for 20 minutes, this ship disappeared. That's right. Uh, I, I'm going to ask a dumb question, ask where did it go, and you're going to say nowhere. It didn't go anywhere, as it was still there in the harbor. There was, in fact, even a test with somebody coming by with a launch to see if they could touched the hull of the ship, well, they were a little bit far away, but what they found was that there was a viscous-like resistant field. They couldn't even get their hand up to their elbow into it. It was resisting any attempt to penetrate it. So we're generating a field of a very unusual nature, and that field was outside of the ship by a fair distance, depending on the power. And actually what you had was a 
a toroidal field, and the toroidal field was rotating, but it was also bisected across the donut, like you slice the donut in half across the full diameter. Mm-hmm. One half of the field was above the waterline, the other half was below the waterline. Huh. It produced a very unusual effect because the end result of that was your rotating magnetic field was essentially unipolar above the waterline. What happened to the biological entities, the people, on board the ship? When the uh, order was given to terminate the test and return to dockside, there was no problem. They did return the ship to dockside. There were certain numbers of personnel stationed on the deck to see what they saw and what they observed. These people, these sailors, were totally disoriented, sick, nauseous, uh, out of it as the saying goes, and uh, mentally very confused. They were not insane, and they were not uh, in the state which happened on the second test. But in any case, <clears throat> the Navy says, well, it's no problem. We have another test crew because they only took about one half of the special group who were trainees who went through a special 90-day training school at the Coast Guard Academy, headed by my father, believe it or not. And uh, they said, well, we have another crew for you. No problem. And so Van Neumann says, well, I've got to find a means to solve this problem. And he asked the Navy for more time. Well, they didn't initially give him a date for the second test. But what happened was that after about a week, they said, okay, you got a drop-dead date, the 12th of August, 1943. Complete your tests by then or forget it. Well, we couldn't figure out what the blazes this was all about. It never it made no sense that anyone had ever given such an order before. And I went to Halbowen. I said, where did this order come from? He found out it came from the chief of naval operations, who was Admiral King at that time, which made even less sense because he was only concerned with the operation of the Navy's part in the worldwide theater of operations and running the war. Mm-hmm. Why should he be concerned about an engineering test? We never did find the answer to that till many, many years later. But in any case, came the 12th. <clears throat> we had a great deal of concern about it. And Neumann did not have time enough to make any major change in equipment. Um, we're almost over the news here, but why were your concerns greater about the second test than the first? Well, we were concerned more about the second test for this reason. Captain Harrison had decided that because of what he saw through the binoculars, he wanted special uh, additional tests run, like he put pressure uh, reading equipment on the hull inside and outside, a special crew, additional crew, was assigned to the Eldridge. All right, Al, hold it there. Relax, we'll be back right after the news. Stay there, everybody. We'll be back. Chancellor Broadcasting presents Classic Art Bell. We reach deep into the archives to 1993 for an all-time favorite show. Art's fascinating and captivating interview with Al Bielek, who details his personal experience with the Philadelphia Experiment. The show is from deep in the archives before a lot of our technological upgrades, so the audio sounds muffled, but the interview is still fascinating. Stay tuned for the final two hours of tonight's presentation. From 1994, we've dug out two hours with Preston Nichols, who tells his story of the Montauk Experiment, a follow-up to the Philadelphia Experiment. Two more hours with Al Bielek, then two hours with Preston Nichols. That's all tonight, Friday night, Saturday morning on this, the best of Art Bell. From the Kingdom of Nine. 
This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the CBC Radio Network. Al, are you still there? Sam. All right, let's talk second experiment. Well, okay. To continue where I left off, <clears throat> they decided they wanted to do some pressure testing on the hull to find out exactly what was going on. They had a second crew placed on board, which was to operate that equipment only. And they assigned a submarine to go under the ship and find out well, what was going on with the water line or whatever. Makes sense, yeah. So all of this was set up for the final test on the 12th of August. And we had the crew on board and everything ready to go. And the last minute, something happened. They pulled the crew, the special crew, and put them on the sub, removed the sub, and then told us of the regular crew for the test to go ahead for the test. Well, at that point, needless to say, Duncan and I were very concerned. What's going on here? There's, we had that funny gut feeling that something was terribly wrong, but we didn't know what. So at the appropriate time, we were given the radio command to proceed, and uh, we had two changes. One, the Navy decided to relax the requirement for optical invisibility or just radar because they decided, if you understand, in those days, there was no lower end, no shore end, and uh, none of the sophisticated navigation systems we have today or mm -hmm. satellites or whatever. Right. And if you didn't have radar visibility, you better have some kind of optical visibility at night in a storm or you might be ramming adjacent ships in a convoy because right. it was typically the way they ran across the Atlantic. It was in a large convoy. And they were trying to thwart the German uh, sink rate, which was then approximately 50% of the shipping crossing the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So... There we were, and we had orders to proceed with the final test, finally received by radio, so we proceeded and fired up the equipment. And for the first, to, to those observing on the outside, and at this point there were three observer ships. There was a carrier, there was a Coast Guard cutter, and there was a commercial ship known as the SS Freeseth, a merchant marine ship. Mm -hmm. The merchant marine, of course, was very interested in the system that worked. They wanted to immediately outfit some of their ships when yeah. crossing the Atlantic. So we had three observer ships. We turned the equipment on, and for about the first 70 or so seconds, everything appeared to be functioning according to plan, i.e. radar and visibility, but you could still see the ship through a haze. The ship was still visible, but not in the normal sense of visibility. It was uh, shrouded, if you will. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, there was a blue flash, and the ship disappeared, waterline and all, and there was no ship in the harbor. It was gone, and I don't mean visibly gone, it was physically gone, and it was gone for about four hours, and then at four hours approximately, the ship suddenly reappeared in the harbor, needless to say, von Neumann and everybody was panicked when this happened, and there was no way to raise anyone on the radio, there was absolutely no radio connection, the ship reappeared, <clears throat> and uh, they immediately observed from the observing carrier, the, the principal observer ship, that there was something wrong. Part of the antenna mass, special one, was gone. There was some superficial damage on the deck of the ship. I, I, I can't stand it, Al. Where did the ship go? I'll get to that. Okay. And uh, the, there was some visible uh, crew running around like crazy, and nobody responded on the radio. So they had a special launch go out with a boarding crew. And when they boarded the ship, they found out much more about what happened. They found two men buried in the steel deck. Two men were buried upright in a steel bulkhead. A fifth man had his hand buried in a steel bulkhead. He lived. He was the only one of the five that lived. They cut his hand off and gave him an artificial hand later. And uh, absolute pandemonium when they found this. And those who were still on deck were insane. 
and uh, totally out of it. I mean, do mean insane. And those below deck were perfectly all right because they were shielded by the steel. Right. The one man developed the problem of intermittent and uncontrolled invisibility, but probably due to flux leakage due to the saturating of the steel. In any case, a special crew was put on board. The ship was brought back to dockside of the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And they had four days of inquiry and hearing what happened. So I made my report. I was there. Duncan was not. He was among those who were missing. And uh, nobody believed my report. Van Orman didn't believe it. But in any case, he told me, I'll talk with you later. They opted for one more test. Like the first test in 1940 that was successful, after replacing the uh, damaged equipment, uh, we'll be in the Outer Harbor, Philadelphia, late at night, sometime late October, 1,200 hours, 2,200 hours at night, and uh, run it on long cables, like a 1,000 feet of cable to the adjacent ship to control it. After the uh, ship was on station, remove the personnel, mm-hmm. control the equipment by remote cable, which they did, and the ship disappeared, came back about 15, 20 minutes later, equipment in the hold was a smoking room and some of it was missing so at that point the Navy washed the hands of the whole project said we're scrapping it put the normal uh, equipment on board the Eldridge uh, re-outfitted for war service that was done <clears throat> it's a war service during 44 and 45 sometime in 46 was put in mothballs and remained there until 1951 I think it was 51 or 2 when it was turned over to the Greek Navy as part of the uh, group that was ships turned over to the Greek Navy by President Truman. It was renamed the Leon, and believe it or not, that ship is still in service in the Greek Navy today. We've had feedback on that in the last two months. That's an astounding story. Uh, so now, if I can... Uh, what happened? That's right. What happened? You were on board. Where did that ship go? What happened to us? That is Duncan and I. Yes. In the first 30 seconds, uh, everything appeared to be normal after the equipment was operational. Then we noticed strange waverings in the tubes, and then some strange electrical arcing started to take place in the control room. Now, this was totally unprecedented because there was no high voltage right there and that could induce such arc over. But nevertheless, it happened. It was continuing. We tried to raise somebody on the radio because in the, another change in the interim was they put a direct link to the radio transmitter and a receiver in our control room rather than going through a remote uh, signaling system and a remote link of mm-hmm. radio tower, so to speak. And uh, we grazed no one, couldn't hear anyone, so we were on our own. We decided at that point, well, this equipment's going haywire. This is not according to plan. we better shut it down. We're in for the main control handles for the main AC power to the equipment, and we yanked on them, grabbed on them, tried to force them. They wouldn't budge. We could not break power connection. Conditions continue to get worse in the control room, so we decided, let's get out of here. Opened the bulkhead door. We're in out on deck. So a sailor's milling around very severely. No one was buried in the deck at that time. And uh, we've got the bright idea, well, let's jump overboard and swim ashore. We were both good swimmers. So we did jump overboard. Now, I must state that at that point, we could see nothing beyond the railing of the ship. It was just a gray fog, if you will, a, a gray something. We right. didn't know what it was, but we couldn't see anything beyond the ship. The ship was still quite visible of itself, though there was a haze running around on the ship. We jumped overboard. We never hit the water. Decided we didn't know what was happening, but we started to fall and fall and fall through what appeared to be or felt like a tunnel of some kind. Mm-hmm. 
and all kinds of strange flashing lights. And eventually, we wound up standing on our feet on dry land. Uh, quite a change from the expected water landing. I should say. Uh, dry land at night on the inside perimeter of a military base. There's a chain link fence immediately to our back. And suddenly there was a bright searchlight beaming down on us from what was obviously a helicopter overhead. Right. And we didn't know what a helicopter was because in 43 there were still play toys, things which Sikorsky was working on, selling a few to the military, but they certainly were not a mainstay at that period. Today they are a mainstay of the military. So here we were spotlighted by a searchlight and MPs came out of nowheres. This is where the story deviates from the movie. They grabbed us immediately, took us to a building. In the building we went, got on an elevator. We took us down several levels. Elevator doors opened. We saw a lot of military personnel running around, and an elderly civilian came forward and greeted us and said to us, I've been expecting you, gentlemen. I am Dr. John Van Neumann. He looked at him and said, you're who? And I said, I'm Dr. Van Neumann. I said, you can't be. We left him about an hour ago. He's a much younger man. He said, no, I'm sorry, gentlemen, no longer in 1943, I'm 40 years older, this is 1983, and you're at Montauk, Long Island, part of the Phoenix Project. Well, we thought he was nuts. Wow. However, he gave us the grand tour of the underground base. We saw computers which did not exist in 43, graphic displays, large screen color TV, and other electronic apparatus totally beyond anything we knew of in 1943. So we were not only impressed, we were thoroughly distraught. Finally, we sat down and watched TV for a few hours. As we found out later, we arrived at about 2 a.m. in the morning on the 12th of August, 1983, on Montauk, Long Island. The base was at the extreme eastern end of Long Island on what is known as a Montauk Air Force Station, long since abandoned, but 1983 was still operational in terms of this project. So we watched Color TV, which, of course, didn't exist in 43. And when you see ads for a 747 jet aircraft and men on the moon and discussions about the moon landings and the Cold War with Russia and a few other things, we knew something was terribly wrong. Holy mackerel, Al. And a few shots of modern freeways and traffic jams and, and that sort of thing. That That could be... Psychologically, it was devastating. Devastating is a good word. Uh, Al, hold on. We're going into another break. What an amazing story. What a turn. Thank you. Stay right there, Al. What an incredible story. This is CBC. Now, back to the best of Art Bell. Good morning, everybody. An absolutely amazing story. Al Bielik is my guest. The discussion surrounding the Philadelphia experiment. And, uh, Al, we're going into a series of small breaks now, so we'll have to capsulize this. Um, and I promise I'll get to these phone lines, which are all full toward the bottom of the hour here. Al, uh, here you are. In uh, You jumped off the ship. You're on dry land. Greeted by a helicopter with a spotlight, and you're on a military base, and you're in 1983. Correct. Oh. We didn't believe it at first, but uh, after watching uh, everything, seeing the evidence, we actually went up uh, during the daylight hours up uh, above the ground on the base. They did not let us off the base, but we did have a look around. It was a very large military base, and it's still there, though defunct at the present time. Uh-huh. And uh, defunct in terms of the surface buildings. That's another long story on the Montauk project. But in any case, 
Finally, Van Neumann told us, he said, well, gentlemen, uh, perhaps you're convinced now. I said, well, now we'll have to tell you the rest of the story. He says, I've known the whole story for some time. I've had it in my records. said, you will go back. We have to send you back to the Eldridge so that you can smash the equipment and shut it off. He says, we can't control it from here. It's still running. The ship disappeared into hyperspace and into a hyperspace bubble, which is a mathematical artificial reality. And it's sustained by the fields generated by the equipment on board the ship. And so there's enough fuel there to keep it running for 30 days if something doesn't break down. They said, the problem is that there, this hyperspace bubble is growing, and we don't know what it's going to encompass and how large it may get. It could engulf the entire Earth. Now, if you remember from the movie, there was an allusion to this. You know, that is the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, released in 84. Uh, there's a growing huge storm, and the uh, energy is oh. growing. Oh, yes, 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 Al. I'm, I've got it on tape. I'm going to go right home this morning and watch it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, you got to go back and destroy the equipment on the Eldridge so I can return to the harbor in 43. And I said, well, that's great. Just how are we supposed to do that? He says, we'll send you back. And I said, and just how are you going to do that? He says, well, we have complete control over space and time here on this project. We can send you anywhere as we want. So we scratched our heads again. We didn't believe him, but they did send us back to the, de- the decks of the Eldridge. And the Montauk project is another long story of itself. They did indeed have control of space and time. And that is another long total story. But well, then we obviously have uh, time travel. We've had it since 1945. Good heavens! Excellent. And and not just time time travel, but but apparently simultaneously through space as well. Yes. Now that's a much later development. That was the Montauk project in the 60s and the 70s. Actually, it didn't come online without a cable but, but, until 76, 77. What I'm saying is that actually occurred with the Philadelphia experiment because that ship moved not just in time but in space. Correct. That was not intended. It was an accident, so to speak. But the two experiments locked up, and he knew it. <clears throat> so he sent us back so we could smash the equipment. So we're back on the deck of the Eldridge. We go in the control room. We find axes, and we start smashing everything in sight. And eventually, with enough equipment, the lines cut and equipment smashed, mostly the 606 tubes and some auxiliary electronic equipment. The main generator started to wind down, and at that point we knew the thing was over, so we went back out on deck. And of course, at that point, we saw the bodies buried in the steel. Uh, However, we still couldn't see the harbor, and one of the things that turned up was a younger brother by the name of Jim, who was six years younger than Duncan and myself, had enlisted in the Navy after the war started, wound up volunteering for that special test crew, and wound up in the second test, and he was dying in the bulkhead. His head and shoulders were out of the steel. I went, he was crying. I went over and put my arm around him, and of course he died that way, and Duncan took one look at this mess and looked at me and jumped overboard and disappeared. He wound up back in the Montauk Project probably in 83. Records indicate, as we found since, that it was in 83 that he arrived. And that's another long story, but I will go back to what happened so far as the ship is concerned. All right. After Duncan jumped overboard, the fields collapsed. It took about two minutes because they had been building up for many, many hours. Right. Exactly how long in hyperspace you can't stay, but in terms of time at Philadelphia, it was four hours. So they collapsed. We saw the normal harbor. The ship was seen to return, and of course, they sent the launch out and so forth. And I remained with the ship. I made my report. I told them what happened, where I went. Nobody believed me. Van Neumann later took me aside and says, I don't know whether to believe you or not. He says, we're going to find out. 
So he built a time machine there at the Institute, a small but workable one. And the technology for that was very little different than what we were dealing with in terms of the invisibility experiment. Uh, so we said, you're going back to 83, and you're going to get proof and bring it back to me to prove that you were there and that I was there. <laughs> oh, he did. He sent me more than once, and I came back with proof that he accepted. So no more of that experiment. And, of course, he was satisfied. It went into a report somewhere. And, of course, October of 43... After that part was over, he was part of the atomic bomb project at Los Alamos. He made his first trip up there in late October. I guess we could conclude then that the technology from 83 has continued. Surely that's not something they've dropped. No. So, so they have that and much more capability now. Yes, and furthermore, the project, though it was scuttled by the Navy in 43, was resurrected in 1947 when they asked Dr. Van Neumann to resurrect the project and see if he could salvage anything from it and find out what really went wrong. Well, 46, of course, he was involved in the race with the British on building the first all-electronic digital computer, and uh, he won the race, despite what BBC says. And uh, <clears throat> the first computer was completed in 1952. The first working model is today in the Smithsonian, and there's a documentary on that. But in any case, the first one was completed, and he built a new system for the Navy, having solved the problem. In 53, they had a new test on another ship, and there was no personal side effects. It was declared a success finally, and of course, they reclassified the project again and put it under the code name Project Phoenix. All right, an obvious question, Al. Yeah. If we have this capability now, invisibility, uh, why not? Why are we building stealth aircraft? Why are we putting special skins on aircraft and corners that are non-reflective of radar and that sort of thing? If we have technology that uh, will do that, or is it still uh, to the degree that uh, you could not fit it, for example, reasonably on an airplane? Or no, they've long since solved that problem. Well, Fitted for aircraft. It's on the, used on the B-1 bomber, the B-2, which is a stealth bomber. You're saying this technology is being used for stealth? Yes, that's on all Navy fighter aircraft. It was Israeli fighter aircraft, uh, the SR-71. Holy! All of the large Navy. Al, hold on. A cassette tape of this Art Bell encore presentation is available by calling 1-800-917-4278. Please specify the date you heard this broadcast. That's 1-800-917-4278. You are listening to the best of Art Bell. From the Kingdom of Nye, Coast to Coast AM continues with Art Bell. Miss Felix, are you there? Yes. Um, I would like to get the audience involved, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Now, I'll just finish that statement. Yes. That the large supercarriers have the capability, and it's even today down to a personnel size. Individual backpack, uh, belt pack, if you will, where an individual can become invisible. Well, that's a disturbing thought. Yes. For, for the rest of us visible folk. Um, man is a reality. All right, we'll continue the discussion now, but let me get a little bit of uh, some of the audience in on this. Uh, uh, line one, you're on the air with Al Bielik. Uh Yes, I was listening. I, I excuse my ignorance of physics, but uh, uh, I caught most of it. Some of it just went over my head. Uh, many people, I'm sure, have the same. Is there a way to succinctly describe how uh, 
you made the ship, the ship invisible? Well, he, he did that. Uh, you mean for the layman? Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's a good question, sir. Uh, thank you. Al, to the layman, All right. uh, how would you describe this? And describe it as a special combination of electric and magnetic fields rotating, which because of the choice of frequency, which was mathematically correct, it interacts with the gravity field. And what it does in that case, you then, according to the unified field theory, which has been completed and the government does have it since 1938, uh, <clears throat> reinteracts with the time field. Now, that gets into a long story, but I will state it very simply by saying you start to phase the ship out of our time reference. And you phase it out far enough, the ship is still physically here in our reality, but what happens is the fields act in a manner so that energy is no longer reflected from that object. Now, if you don't have a reflection, whether it be light or radar, you have no image. So, in, in a sense, in the first part of the experiment anyway, the ship actually was not invisible. It simply was enveloped in a field that uh, um, uh, created uh, either to radar or to visual frequencies the appearance of invisibility. Is that about right? That's correct. And then in the later stages of the experiment something radically different occurred in which That's correct. space and time were shifted. That's right. That was not intended. It was not part of the original experiment as set up. Holy smokes. Out of state, you're on the air in Las Vegas with Al Bielek. Where are you calling from, please? I'm calling from Little Rock, California. Okay, go ahead. Um, I ought to have a really hard time believing this. Um, how come we don't own the world already, then, if we have this kind of technology? All right. That is Actually, that's a very good question, uh, Mr. Bielek, uh, with this kind of technology that you say now is down to the point of a backpack uh, and an individual becoming invisible, we ought to more or less own the world. Well, that depends upon who you consider is owning it, because you then get into a political arena involving who is really running the show in terms of a super-secret government who manipulated much of this technology, at least in the later phases, they did not in terms of the Philadelphia experiment because that was a homegrown experiment involving the Institute of Advanced Study in the Navy. But then it got into the phases after 1947. You then start running into political considerations, uh, the UFO problem, a group called MJ-12, and the secret government. And the secret government is determined to have a one-world government, the so-called New World Order, which I'm sure everybody's heard the term, mm -hmm. uh, promulgated by Bush and company. And this is the real just of it, the secret government. They have control of all of this technology. And we no longer, as a nation, really control all of that technology. We no longer, as a nation, have the kind of authority and position we once had. All right, caller? Um, yeah. Um, I, you know, like I said, I have a hard time, um, you know... Uh, accepting the story. You know, well, accepting that this is real, but... Uh, you know, I had a strange experience when I was a young child once that, that, you know, I can't explain myself and, and, uh, it was very real to me and, and, you know, it has me thinking, you know, this guy could be telling the truth, but it's so hard to believe. I agree. Thank you. Al, um, how do you deal with that? I mean, do you find that people generally laugh you off, uh, uh, discard what you're saying, um, or do most people buy it or how do you deal with, the incredible aspects of this story. I mean, it is incredible. This beats most UFO stories I've heard. <laughs> well, I think you could say that in many respects it does. Now, 
the problem here is that, yes, there are a lot of people who have never heard the story before. They have not read any other material that's been in the open literature since 1955 dealing with the Philadelphia Experiment. Uh, there's much additional material I can give you on this, but nevertheless, the movie was made in 1984. It was released telling basically the story, but a lot of Hollywood fill in with a sure. love story in the interest of sure, the running sure. around Nevada, right. California. They, they can't make movies without love scenes. Oh, right. It's, none of that never occurred. The beginning and the ending is, the beginning is very accurate. The ending is nearly accurate. All right. But uh, in any case, there is a problem there. If you have not been exposed to this, yeah, how can this possibly be? I agree with the gentleman. To be hit with this all at once is rough. Uh, skepticism, but do your research. Eventually, you'll find enough information that you'll probably agree that it happened because there is information available in spite of government suppression. All right. Line two, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, there's a lot of questions, of course. It's kind of hard to... So I want to ask one very important one. Do you have what you said in a book? I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, do you have what you, uh, this story that you've just told us, have you written a book about it, Al? Yes, as a matter of fact. And uh, what's the name of it? I'm author with Brad Steiger in a book entitled The Philadelphia Experiment and Other UFO Conspiracies. Okay. Because when you go into the aspects in the 80s, there's more to it than just the Philadelphia Experiment. I'm sure there is. Who publishes that, Al? That's published by, uh, uh, let me think at this hour of the morning, my thinker isn't working 100%. <laughs> Would there be uh, more than one book with that title? Yes. That book was uh, published and released in 1990. Uh, <clears throat> Interlight Publications is the publisher. Interlight? Interlight. Interlight. Okay. okay. And another question, that re- is Dr. Um, von Neumann still alive? Yes, he is. He did not die in 1957, as the public record states. Okay. Uh, another thing is, if this is made into a weapon, uh, would you say, I mean, if we had that much gone that far and it was in America, how did it get away from us? It didn't get away from us in terms of the invisibility. Uh, we have shared it with others. Well, are you saying then that some of the world leaders must all be in on it and they have, can they have gone and seen the future? Therefore, this is why they're so, uh, uh, you know, intent on making it one world because they feel that they have to or there won't be peace and people will be. That's a good question, ma'am. And I'm going to wrap, uh, thank you for the call. I'm going to wrap into that question a little bit. Uh, Al, is it possible to change what occurs in time? Yes and no. Uh, yes, you can if you know what you're doing, but the point is you, they are more concerned with altering the present by looking at the future in order to make the future come out the way the current ruling elite want it to come out. Uh, changing the past is more difficult. It can be done, but it's very difficult. You get into problems of quantum mechanics and quantum physics. I guess what I'm asking really is uh, these world leaders that are um, according to you and others, uh, in concert, headed us, heading us toward a one-world government. Is there an inevitability about it uh, in that it's going to happen whether we like it or not, or can we change it between now and whenever it coalesces? Uh, it can be changed. There's no such thing as it being cast in stone. Uh, they would like to see, to the fact that it would become inevitable from their point of view. That's why they're trying to change time and events. By looking in the future, there is a project called the Project Looking Glass, which is a view into the future. There are other more complex machines today built from the 70s onward where they can travel in time as well as look in time. 
They have uh, some, shall we say, some restrictions on that in terms of the future. All right, Al. Uh, out of state, you're on the air in Las Vegas with Al Bielik. Where are you calling from, please? I'm calling from Alaska. Alaska, all right. I, uh, I believe you're absolutely correct, uh, correct about the uh, who did the experiment, the New World Order, the international bankers that took over our gold standard back in 1913. Right. Um, I'm sure you're absolutely right. I'm the guy that predicts earthquakes, and we're going to have some in September. Okay. All right. Any questions, sir? What? Any questions from Mr. Bielek? Oh, yeah, questions. Um, gosh, I don't know how you're going to be able to prove to anybody you're telling the truth, but um, uh, I don't really have a question. Good luck. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Uh, well, I can indirectly answer his question. Proof today of this is very difficult. The proof was almost in my hand several times, but uh, let's say the government moved faster and got there first. Well, they have lots of resources, Al. They have vast resources, believe me. All right. Line three, you're on the air with Al Bielek. Good morning. Yes, hi, Art and Al. Al, I'd like to know if you're related to the uh, Dr. Cameron in uh, Canada that was working with the CIA in mind control experiments. Not that I know of. The family name is the same. <clears throat> And of course, I didn't tell the story of how I became Al Bielik, but nevertheless, I am fully aware of the Cameron story in Canada and MK Ultra and the whole CIA project up there. And believe me, when I visited Montreal to give a series of lectures about uh, years ago, I asked this question of my host if they heard of or knew of the Dr. Cameron. He says, oh, yes, we all know about him up here. And the Canadians were not pleased when they found out what was going on. Yes, I do know and him. As far as I know, he's not directly related. Okay, because he, his father was a Duncan Cameron, and he graduated from Glasgow. I thought you might be related. But his did you say your, your brother, Cameron. was he involved with a sodomy project, that Montauk project? I'm sorry, what was that again? Your your brother, was he was he involved with abducted boys who were, you know, the sodomy project, the Montauk project? Yes, he was involved with the Montauk project. I was also, but as Al Bielik. And uh, we were both involved, as well as some other people, including Preston Nichols. But Duncan was heavily involved with the Montauk Project, that's true. But that is Duncan in the new body. That's uh, another aspect of the story that's hard to go into. But he died in uh, in the project in the 83, and he was born into, replaced, shall we say, put into another body back in 1963, which had been born in 51. Oh, Michael. You know, metaphysics, it's hard to believe and accept, but nevertheless, uh, the groups working with the government are very capable of, shall we say, shoving souls around and putting them anywhere as they want. Uh, where are you calling from, ma'am? Salt Lake City. Okay, any other questions? Oh, that's fine. Thanks very right. much. Thank you very much, and uh, good morning. This, uh, yes, it's, you're beginning to get a bit metaphysical on us now, uh, Al, but you said, I'm sure it all winds together. Uh, it all locks together, but I'll try to keep it to hard science and... Uh, things which are, are directly observable. All right. Out of state, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Where are you calling from, please? Calling from um, Alaska. From Alaska again. All right. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, turn your radio off, sir. That's number one. Turn about your, that? Turn your radio off. Your caller is weak on the line. I really have a question here. Um, I hear these loose terms such as quantum mechanics and such and such, and uh, if he's anywhere near familiar with quantum mechanics, he'll understand that any one event can set out the chain reaction of many other events in ever-expanding cone down a timeline. This is as dictated by Stephen W. Hawking, one of the world's, world's leading physicists who claims that we have not got a grand unified theory yet. 
My question is, how is he going to prove this? All right, thank you. It's a good question. Tell me about the name uh, Hawkins. I have one of his books. Right, I've read it as well. How are you going to endeavor to prove what you're saying? Or even any portion of it, Al? Well, that's not easy. Uh, quantum physics does make certain statements, and then when the Navy engaged in certain experiments in 1973, which when I was given in the way of information, they wanted to go back in time and assassinate the man who was the father of the person they knew would be the new leader of the New World Order. Uh, they assumed that by assassinating the father before he married that the son alive today would disappear. Right. They went back in the past, assassinated the man, and the son didn't disappear. Nothing happened to him. So they scratched their heads and they went to the physicist and they said, aha, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and time is quantized as well as the physical universe. Therefore, you only affect the events within the area where you were. You do not affect the entire time stream into the future. Now, that is what their statement was. And so I you, you, you create a temporary uh, disturbance only. But not a complete disruption. And it kind of folds back into its original line. Yes. <laughs> but that's not entirely true. Something. Because what they were using was a time machine which was operating on a single line reality only. Montauk was capable of encompassing all the alternate realities. Oh, my. Uh, wait, let's keep moving here. A lot of people want to talk to you, Al. Um, out of state, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Where are you calling from, please? Hello. Yes, I'm uh, calling from Medford, Oregon. Medford, Oregon, all right. Yes, um, let's see. The first question I had was, um, let's see, back in the story there, uh, the first one of the things that he said was about uh, Pearl Harbor's attack on the United States and that he was notified and pulled out before that attack. They got him out, yes. Right. They um, did not send us back. Why was there no, I mean, well, what about everybody else that was there? I just wonder why, you know, it just it seems kind of unbelievable. No, that's a good question. Uh, Al, if they actually had enough knowledge to get you and your uh, cohorts out, uh, why not prepare for the Japanese attack and be ready? Because there was a complete setup ordered by Roosevelt to have an attack on the United States in order to get us into the war. That's the bottom line. I've heard that one before. I mean, there's plenty of evidence after the war was over when they started investigating the wreckage, and it was published openly in the papers. All right. We, um, I'm afraid we have to break here, uh, folks. Thank you very much for the call, and Al, stand by. Uh, we'll get back to you in just a moment. This is the CBC Radio Network. And now, back to the best of Art Bell. Let us uh, keep moving if we can. Good morning, Line One. You're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Yes, good morning. Very interesting. I hope uh, your guests can hear me. Three quick questions. Just a few weeks ago, a young uh, colleague of Edward Teller's, Lawrence Livermore Labs, said this story was bunk. Should I disbelieve him in the future about anything else? Two... You're right, they do have von Neumann is dead in uh, 1957. If he's alive now, he'd be about 90. Why did they have him dead? And are there other people you could name that they also had dead who were still alive? All right, you better slow down here, and we better get some okay. answers. Wait, let me get down to the, get to the chase here. What kind of models did you use for this? And what is to keep a, um, a contemporary electromagnetic buff from making his own model at home? All right, all right, stay on the line, please. Um, Al? Okay. Uh, you spoke with a colleague of Tellers who said the story was bunk. I didn't speak with him. He's a, he has a radio program of his own. Okay. Well, you can, 
Also, we had a chorus there of a number of other scientists who also consider it bunk, H. Stanton Friedman, uh, Bruce Maccabee, etc. They are all part of the government disinformation team because they don't want the facts out. The government still denies to this day that that experiment ever took place. But if that's the case, then I'll ask you a question. Why have they made it under the revised uh, federal felony laws of 1987, the felony espionage laws, a felony offense to talk about either the Philadelphia experiment or the Eldridge on a Navy base? If there is nothing to it, why is it a felony offense to talk about it on a Navy base? Well, or, or how about this? If it's a felony uh, offense to talk about it, how come you're free? Well, I haven't talked about it on a Navy base, number one. Oh, on a Navy base, I see. A Navy base, correct. Well, that's a good question. Not off base. Uh, number two, um, uh, what is the modeling for this? No, for Neumann's death in 57. Okay, von Neumann was dying of cancer. And they pulled him out, cured him of the cancer, put him under what is well known as a Federal Protected Witnesses Program, gave him a new identity, and had him continue. He had to be alive and kept alive at least until 1983 because of the involvement with the Montauk Project on the 12th of August, 83. And he is still alive today. I've met with him. We've gone out to dinner. He unfortunately now has a problem of a split personality, and he's not very often in his right mind. And I think that is probably induced by the government for the sake of covering up. There are other people who have done this, too, also. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of a Dr. Frederick Krippers, who was brought over to the United States as Project Paperclip in 1946-47. He also had a fake funeral in 1962 on Lincoln's birthday. I know his daughter very well. And she told me a rather interesting story. All right, we're being pressed by the top of the hour here. Caller, your phone. Brothers, thank you very much. Okay, there are others of the same nature. The government does this uh, at their convenience for whatever reason. Well, as far as proof is concerned, that's quite difficult. The model of this thing is highly mathematical, involves going back into history of people who have developed the mathematics for it, Dr. Norman Levinson. All right, Al, we're now on the news. Can you stay another hour? Sure. All right, stay right there. Al Bielik, my guest, will be back. Stay tuned for more of the best of Art Bell. This is an encore presentation of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. You're listening to the third hour of a three-hour interview with Al Bielik from 1993. And now, back to the best of Art Bell. Here again is Art. Line one, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Las Vegas. Hi. Yes, Mr. Bell, thank you for having me on. Uh, I, I just caught this on my way home, ran home real quick to get it. So if, if this is a stupid question, it's already been asked. I was just kind of curious. And I'll hang up and take the answer on the air on my radio. Um, did President Kennedy's death have have anything to do with this? I'm sorry. And President who's uh, that the assassination of President Kennedy was, was was that involved with the government? Any any part of this experiment with either bringing him back or not the knowledge? Okay. And uh, as for going into the future, is, is his uh, is his death ever solved? Is his death ever resolved? Solved. Solved. 
That's pretty well solved now. Uh, I don't think one has to go much further into the future because enough records have been released, enough uh, movie films to fairly well nail it down. Right. Uh, thank you, caller. And to pursue this just a little bit, why would it not be possible, Al, to go back and stop the assassination? That's a good question. Uh, theoretically, it might be. I don't know if there has ever been any attempt or a desired anywhere is to make the attempt to do it. I can see that uh, a relatively unknown person would make a relatively small ripple in time. Right. But my God, uh, President Kennedy, uh, if you were to change that and he was not assassinated, would, would cause a gigantic uh, explosion in time. Yes, he would. It would cause an enormous upheaval because of the fact of what he was doing and the reasons why he was assassinated. Because he wanted to uh, eliminate the Fed and print U.S. notes. He wanted the CIA to reveal the fact that they were <clears throat> not only in uh, drug business, but they were also the other groups suppressing the facts about UFOs and E.T. So well, I do understand he had signed an executive order uh, that uh, would have had a big effect on the Fed, and that that was then reversed by Johnson. Yes. Yeah, and he also already had issued a large number of U.S. notes, which is legal tender under our Constitution. So he had a number of uh, people who were out for his head, so to speak, and uh, eventually they didn't get it. All right. Uh, we've got to keep moving here. Uh, very quickly, out of state, where are you calling from, please? Hello? Uh, no, you're not. Line two, you're on the air with Al Bielik in uh, Las Vegas. Good morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm, pr I'm pretty much on the belie uh, believing side of uh, time travel and Philadelphia experiments, stuff like that. I had a question. The time field that uh, the modern-day... Uh, time machines you're talking about would have would there be anything to any type of uh, equipment to be able to sense the disturbance in the time continuum when they would use it oh that's a good question is there a way to detect time travel uh, in progress now in progress yeah in other words yeah, I understand what you mean to detect the presence of the field and you sense the field if somebody's playing this game yeah uh, that I can't answer I don't know uh, theoretically, anything's possible, but I don't know of any way at this point where it could be done. Uh, there should be sensing means for determining when somebody is playing a game of some sort with the time field, but I don't know. All right. Uh, anything else, caller? Yeah. On on the time machines that are like uh, the modern day, do they still use a uh, like a magnetic field? Okay, uh, thank you, caller. Do, are they still using uh, a magnetic field, was the question now. I mean, for uh, this type of work? Yes. Mm -hmm. I can't answer what they're doing in terms of current technology, because it's gone through many generations. Surely uh, the experiment um, with the Eldridge uh, would have been very detectable. In fact, oh, very. with the kind of power that you were uh, transmitting at 160 megahertz, that, that alone would have been detectable for... Yes, with today's equipment, there would be no question it could have been detected. And, of course, with uh, radar equipment for that frequency only, or the receivers, they would pick it up. But after the ship became radar invisible, of course, then they couldn't pick up the field anymore because it <clears throat> had already unfolded on itself and done the time phase shift number. So it was gone, literally. That's right. The field was not detectable after a certain point. All right. Uh, very quickly, line two, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Las Vegas. Where, where are you calling from, please? Line two? No, you're not there. Out of state. Good morning. You're on the air. Hi, Art. Hello. Where are you calling us from, sir? Ma, Ogabogaland. 
Oh, I don't think we'll deal with that. Line three, you're on the air with Al Bailey. Uh, Dr. Bailey, I have a question. What is the name of these fundamental sub-equations that govern classical electromagnetism? I'm sorry, would you repeat the question? Uh, what is the name of the set of equations that govern classical electromagnetism? Well, if you go into classical electromagnetism, you're going to find that there are discrepancies there and it does not agree with some of the work. Uh, I'd just like to know the name of the set of the equations. I couldn't give you all of that okay. information. Okay, that's fine, because uh, the, the name is Maxwell's equations, which probably any sophomore in physics now understands. Okay, and um, I find, uh, I know Max Dresden, who was uh, John von Neumann's graduate student. I was with him at the University of Kansas, and um, he talked about being at the von Neumann funeral in 1957, sir. It was a funeral. Uh, yeah, and um, I have heard of Dr. Friedman, who was at the uh, Linear Collider out at Stanford. I've heard him speak. And he seems like a very credible person. I have spoken with him uh, just very briefly, but I've been to a couple of his lectures. He seems very credible. And um, thirdly, I'd like to point out something, that it is possible to distort space-time, but you need something that has a very, very large mass, such as a black hole. So I have to say this, sir, that I, I, I don't believe... Well, all right, hold on. Let him, let him respond. Uh, the only, you just said the only way to distort it was a black hole or the event horizon of a black hole. So basically a large mass. Yeah, I, I understand. All right, uh, Al, go ahead and answer that. Well, that's in terms of current thinking and where they're admitting maybe time travel is possible in terms of classical physics as it's viewed today. Uh, it does not require a large mass. It requires manipulation of the three basic elements of our field theory, if you uh, manipulate three, namely electric field, gravitic field, and tachyon field, you then manipulate the fourth, which is the time field. It does take power, but it does not take mass. The mass has nothing to do with it, and mass is a misnomer in terms of the real physics, if you ever went through it, because what they teach today in the universities in terms of electromagnetic theory and physics is largely garbage. All right. Out of state, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Good morning. Where are you calling from, please? Hello, out of state. Are you there? Somebody's got their radio on. Last opportunity. Are you there? Line one, you're on the air. Yeah, sorry, not questions for your guests. Um, so then the government can send someone into the future to learn anything they want, I would suppose. And what would the aliens think about humans having such capabilities now? Well, in terms of that, uh, they were part and parcel of the Montauk Project, so that they were, in that sense, aiding and abetting the project. They were assisting in terms of the Montauk Project, in terms of the more standardized time travel that was not alien technology, that was homegrown technology here on Earth. The Germans, prior to the end of World War II, had functioning time machines. Von Neumann had one in the laboratory in 44, and uh, the work that's been done since then, after the war was over, has in part been strictly homegrown technology, that is Earth technology, and in a larger sense, there has been contributions by aliens because of the agreement and the treaty that was made in 1954 with Eisenhower. All right, caller. Thank you. Thank you. Out of state, uh, very quickly, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Uh, good morning. Um, I had a question about the 3839 death ray test. All right. Okay. What exactly was the extent of those tests and uh, where those tests lead us to now? 
All right, the death ray, Al. That was tested in uh, White Sands, New Mexico, test range 3839, according to second-hand information from witnesses who were there. And uh, what happened was they had a very large laser-like device that Tesla designed. It emitted a green ray, according to the eyewitnesses, and any object it was aimed at, it was a pulse-charge device with huge capacitor banks. It took a certain finite period of time to charge up the capacitors after a firing. Uh, they aimed it at a truck or a tank. They turned green and disappeared. Then the last test, they apparently aimed it at... They had tried animals, too, but they aimed it at a mountaintop. From what I'm told, the mountaintop disappeared, and that was a little too much for the military people in charge of the test. The story is that they ordered the equipment destroyed and the notes buried. I find it hard to believe myself that if they had a weapon of that capability, that they would bury it and destroy it. I so it, it was basically virtually was uh, it virtually disintegrated an object. All right, thank you. Uh, in other words, it, it made things disappear. Actually, more than just disappear, Al. They dis- were gone permanently. Gone permanently. With the earlier caller, Mr. Critic, who was on earlier, um, I am not a physicist, uh, Al. I've got a little basic electronics, or maybe more than a little, and my, I've worked in microwave, and I know a little bit about magnetism, but I don't know the equations uh, that govern uh, magnetism. Well, and, and, but he said he said what were they? Uh, any any sophomore would know in physics, and uh, I I don't know. Uh, so how do you answer that? The question was rather ambiguous in the first place. Yes, you can quote Maxwell and Maxwell's equations, but the problem there is you have to go back to the original Maxwell equations as published well over a hundred years ago, and not the truncated version taught in the universities today, which were derived by Heaviside in 1875. And you also have to consider uh, Dr. Hertz and his Hertzian waves and the theory which he expounded and the current basic theory which is taught in the universities, which is partly correct and partly incorrect. One of the things they teach you, which you may remember yourself from all of your work, is that the electromagnetic wave as a radio wave, the magnetic component is propagated at the same rate as the electric field. That is not true. That's right. Oh, it is not true? No. The magnetic field is propagated at a rate of 0.6 that of the electric field in in a combined radio wave, which is a first-order wave electromagnetically. And uh, a radio wave is propagated according to theory at the speed of light. Now, of course, you get into an argument there as what is the speed of light. Uh, it is not a constant. It is on the Earth in the matter in which we, uh, the methods by which we have measured it. But Einstein himself denied that it was a constant. Said he was misquoted. That he never said it was a constant other than on Earth on the magne- electromagnetic field as we know it here on Earth and on the conditions in which we have measured it. Well, we certainly know that magnetism affects light, as evidenced by what a black hole does with light. That's true. All right, uh, let's keep moving here. Uh, line two, you're on the air with Al Bielik. Yes, I'd like to know the ma- name of the man who was assassinated in 1973 to prevent the future birth, and also the, na- the name of the members of the secret New World Order government. All right, well, one at a time here. That's quite a tall order. The name of the man who was assassinated, Al? In 1973? Yes. I do not have that name <clears throat> as to who the man was. Insofar as the members of the Secret World Order are concerned, I recommend that you acquire a copy of John Coleman's book entitled The Conspirators' Hierarchy, The Committee of 300. He lays it all out there in exact terms and names all of the people who are part of the Committee of 300, past and present. 
has a very interesting, concise, and informative book on the political conspiracies and how they, all of these organizations like CFR, Trilateral Commission, Bilderbergers, uh, Club of Rome, Illuminati, the uh, wonderful little Skull and Bones organization, <laughs> or they all fit together. All right, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's see, do we have enough time? Line, line three, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Good morning. Hi, I'd like to know if the electromagnetic disturbances in the Bermuda Triangle are related to experiments such as in Philadelphia. Oh, that is a good question. Uh, where are you calling from, sir? From San Francisco Bay Area, San California. Yeah, okay. Uh, what about it, Al? Answer is no. The disturbances in the Bermuda Triangle are still a matter of conjecture. When Ivan Sanderson was alive and I worked with him on that, uh, he was of the opinion that it was a natural phenomenon because there are 12 such areas on the planet that are forming an essentially perfect geodesic grid and is part of the complete grid and ley line system of the Earth, but these are the 12 primaries. The second most active one on the Earth is over in the Japan Sea, east of the islands of Japan, and they've lost some pretty big ships in there, too. All right, that will have to serve uh, as an answer, so the answer caller is no. Thank you very much, and uh, I'll hold on just a moment. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Art Bell. My guest is Al Bielik. If you've been listening carefully, the man told you how to build something to cause something to disappear or travel in time. Uh, or travel in space. And, uh, Al, if somebody were to take what you have described uh, technically as an outline, the uh, RF field, the rotating magnetic fields, and uh, would you advise them, don't try this at home? <laughs> I would definitely advise them, don't try it at home. Besides, they would never get it to work without certain other key elements that are involved, which are very difficult to get in the way of hardware. Uh, the system encompassed more than that. You had to have a zero-time reference generator, and uh, that was something which Tesla himself developed in the 20s, and is used today in every piece of equipment built for the FAA and a lot of other government uh, craft. Could you remake this? I could possibly, but I don't think I would want to because the form of electric field that was created was incorrect, was wrong. In other words, an open toroid. Though the toroid shape was closed, the field was open in the sense that anything in the middle where the effect takes place is not shielded from outside influence, and that was the problem. The Eldridge was not shielded from outside influence. If they had used a form of the closed oblate spheroid ship uh, field, I'm sorry, then the ship would have been shielded, and that required a lot more theory, and while the theory was available, the electromagnetic complications in terms of hardware were far beyond what they wanted to handle at that time. All right, hold it there, Al. Uh, let's uh, go out of state. You're on the air with Al Bielik. Where are you calling from, please? Yes, I'm calling from California. Uh, I would like to ask uh, Mr. Bielik, um, time and space folds like an accordion. Is this what I'm kind of understanding? No, it doesn't fold like an accordion under normal usage. There are ways of uh, folding it, if you will, <clears throat> which uh, certain alien groups know and apparently use that as a means of propulsion in their ships if the stories are correct. But normally it is not folded. It's in, You can envision it more like one of these child's toys, a helix, in which there are waves going through time. And normally it is a very smooth, even transition and even transmission, but it can be disturbed. And there are uh, things which will disturb it, like the lockup of two experiments or a thermonuclear device that's large enough will, will uh, break the continuity temporarily. 
But otherwise, it's a smooth transition, a smooth flow. That's right. An, uh, an atomic explosion does create a large electromagnetic pulse, doesn't it? And a thermonuclear device, a hydrogen bomb, is the one that creates the huge pulse. Atomic bomb creates a small one, but not of uh, any great significance. Well, then I have a question. Could that conceivably, then, through, through just happenstance, uh, a large hydrogen uh, bomb exploding, could it create a time-space disturbance? Very definitely it does, and it was tested and measured as such in Anahuaytok in 1954. Anything else, ma'am? No, you're doing a wonderful job with this. We're we're just right with you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, and thank you very much for the call. All right, Al, we're going to just take a very brief break here and then go raging through a lot of calls. A lot of people want to talk to you. Stay right there, Al Bielik. We now pause while some additional stations join the network. Good morning, everybody. This is as uh, wild a one as uh, you may ever hear, and it's coming from Phoenix and Al Bielik. We'll be right back. This is an encore presentation of Art Bell. When you hear phone numbers given, please do not call. Art returns to the studio live on August 19th. Now sit back and enjoy this previously broadcast Art Bell program. From the Kingdom of Nye, Coast to Coast AM continues with Art Bell. Line two, are you there? Yes. Uh, where are you calling from, sir? Uh, Las Vegas. All right, go ahead. I don't buy it. I, uh, you know, when I was in college, I minored in physics. I majored in electrical engineering. And um, everything that you've said is bunk. Well, you're entitled to your opinions. Uh, no, it's not an opinion. Right. I, it, um, you know. All right, what specifically, um, if you're going to say this sort of thing, sir, is bunk? Or what can you prove uh, to be bunk? Okay, your statement that Maxwell's equations, you know, are not complete. And oh, were you on the air earlier? Yeah, uh, uh, not on the air earlier. Okay. Oh, the, you're, you, you then go on. Your statements that Maxwell's equations were not complete. Uh, you know, you said that they were not complete. Well, I have a, a book here. It's called, Ele- you know, Engineering Electromagnetics that derives Maxwell's equations step by step, you know, going back to Coulomb's law. There is nothing missing there. And secondly, your contention that, you know, you would need... Well, let's take them one at a time. Do you want to answer that, Al? Okay. Yeah, well, you're familiar with Tom Bearden. Thomas E. Bearden. Are you familiar with Mr. Bearden, caller? Uh, no, but, the, you know, but I can't really hear, you know, what the other fellow's saying. I understand. All right, you'll have to listen on the air then. Thank you. Um, all right, Al, I'll go right ahead. What does Mr. Bearden have to do with this? Well, Bearden has gone through that also and derived the fact that the original Maxwell equations, as written by Maxwell in the handwritten versions, which are well over 100 years old, are not what is currently taught in the universities because Dr. Heaviside in 1875, because they were hard to understand and they could not accept the idea that in the uh, denominator E as the electrostatic field was in Maxwell's original equation stated that it propagates instantaneously throughout the universe, which would immediately violate all of the ideas of relativity and C being the limiting speed of everything in the universe. So that part has been eliminated, basically, from most of the college texts. Now, you may have some texts that show the original. I am not familiar with every book that's around. But nonetheless, they normally teach 
the truncated version developed by Heaviside in 1875, which was an attempt to simplify those equations and make them more understandable. All right. All right. Well, you're, you're over my head. This is CBC. Morning, out of state. You're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Hi, um, I need to know all I can find out about Nikola Tesla. Uh, I think he's one of the greatest people that ever lived, and I really want to know all I can. Learn. All right, uh, where are you calling from, Colin? Uh, I called earlier from Alaska, but I didn't have a question. All right, now, you know, one call per, per customer, folks, um, so I'm just going to pass that one by. Line three, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, where are you calling from, sir? I'm calling from uh, 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 San Diego, California. All right, fine. That's right, by the border. And I'm not at all skeptical, but please answer these three very brief questions for me. Uh, you were about to tell us who shot JFK, and you got interrupted. Please tell us who <laughs> shot him and why. All right, stop, stop. Who shot JFK, Al? Best uh, testimony and uh, enhanced pictures taken as a brooder and other films indicate that it was done by the driver. Oh, yes, uh, that theory, that the driver did it, sir. Okay, uh, then please tell me if ex-President George Bush uh, uh, is a part of the New World Order, why did he allow himself to lose the election? And my third brief question is, is President Clinton now, did he, is he part of it? Does he have all this information, and is he going to be successful? And uh, I find it hard to believe that George Bush would allow himself uh, to lose that power. Uh, all right. All right, thank you. Um, part two, namely with Mr. George Bush, he was part of the New World Order. He does not run it. He was one of the pawns and the gears in the works, if you will. He had a great deal of power. He was former director of the CIA before he became president. And he knew a great many things, but he also was limited in his power. He took orders. He took orders from a higher authority in this country, and so does Clinton. Now, uh, where Clinton is going to go with all of this is hard to say because the scenario is not determined by the president. It is no longer determined by the Congress or the Senate. They are dictated to up and down the line, and you really have to get the book, the Committee of 300, and other material to understand how this whole thing is orchestrated. Mr. Clinton is being manipulated as well, then? Yes, Clinton is being manipulated. In fact, he was bought and sold, I'm sorry to say, before he became governor of the state of Arkansas. All right. Uh, line one, you're on the air with Al Bielek. Good morning. Where are you calling from, please? I'm uh, calling from California. All right. Um, this is a fascinating program. Unfortunately, we missed a good part of it. Is it possible to buy a tape on it? Um, yes. Uh, we have uh, somebody. In fact, uh, after the program is over, I'll tell you how you can get a copy, all right? Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, out of state, you're on the air with Al Bielek. Where are you calling from, please? Seattle, Washington. Uh, in Washington. All right. Go ahead. How are you doing tonight? Fine. I uh, laid down to go to sleep at 1 o'clock and put your show on and last as long as I could, and I'm wide awake, let me tell you. Uh-huh. Um, I have two questions uh, for Al. First off, are you familiar with William Cooper? Oh, yes. And do you, do you agree with what, most of what he says, which agrees so far with a lot of what I've heard that you say? I agree with uh, much of what he says in terms of the political sense. Uh, I think his information has been basically very accurate. And there is some dispute, of course. He is the one that has pushed the theory and the idea based on the films that he has shown that uh, Mr. Greer, the driver, was the man who ultimately assassinated President Kennedy. There were others who fired shots. There's no question of that. I've seen Cooper's films. Right. And and Greer definitely pulled the trigger. Right. Now, even if you go back to the 1963 photos published from the original Zapruder films in Life magazine, you can clearly see, though they're not enhanced, you can see that 
the driver had his hands off the wheel and the uh, Secret Service man in the right seat had his hand on the wheel. That even shows in the originals of Pruda Films published by Life magazine. But nevertheless, there is still some dispute as to whether or not Greer was the final and ultimate assassin. There are others who claim there was somebody on the know who fired the fatal shot because there was more than one shot came in at that low angle. All right, Connor, thank you. Uh, Al, you know, um, they just buried John Conley. Um, and there, there are a lot of people who um, wanted uh, the fragments in Conley's body examined. Mm-hmm. The family of Con- uh, Governor Conley did not. Yeah. So he apparently has been buried without examination. Uh, would you urge that they exhume that body and take a look at those fragments so we could might be able to settle this once and for all? I think that's something that I would not uh, feel qualified to answer in terms of uh, whether or not you're going to find that much out from his body because after all, uh, the body's buried, it uh, deteriorates fairly rapidly. The examination would have had to have been made at, virtually at the time of death or shortly thereafter. But surely the fragments will not deteriorate. If there are bullet fragments, they will not. That's true. All right. Uh, line two, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Thank you very much. Uh, apparently the gremlins are at work. Uh, KQMS uh, stopped carrying you at 3, 3 a.m. Uh, Mr. Bielik, uh, Mr. Charles Bearden, are you familiar with him? I'm sorry, which one? Charles Bearden. Mm, yes. Uh, is free energy, do you think that's on? Free energy is a vast subject, and uh, a number of people who have been involved in research on this, and not only from the theoretical standpoint, but also from the hardware standpoint, have made various pieces of hardware work. More work has been done on this in Europe and Japan than in the U.S., also in England. Okay. Uh, Thomas Searle is one that has been successful. Dr. Psycho of Japan may have been successful, but he's very tight-lipped, if you will. Uh-huh. And uh, Thomas E. Bearden has published a considerable amount on this subject. Uh, there have been others like Bedini. There's a whole host of names of people. Uh, Bruce DePalma and his end machine. And, of course, the end machine goes back to Faraday 200 years ago for the basic principle. And uh, that has been published and was published and is known that he developed, though he didn't understand why it worked. Right. So, yes, there is the free energy is a misnomer in another sense. The, uh, there is no such thing as free lunch. The energy comes from somewhere. Right. The problem is understanding where it comes from and why. How about uh, T. Henry Murray? T. Henry energy around Murray this? was very successful. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, caller. You're on the air with Al Bielik. Where are you calling from, please? I'm in the Bay Area in California. Okay, go ahead. Uh, just a quick question. Based on you know the, the knowledge that you now have, uh, it, is the... The stories that we have in the Bible, are they essentially true or not true, or is just stories? All right. The Bible, real or just a good story, Mr. Bielek? I think historically, if you were the listener referring to the book of Revelations or to the Older Testament. Well, why don't you deal with both? Right. In terms of the Old Testament, I think you'll find that historically much of that information is correct. Uh, the problem is how far back you take it because you are missing many of the books in the Old Testament, the books of the Apocrypha and others which are available separately, which show an additional, much older history than is otherwise recognized. Adam and Eve are, in my sense, allegorical. They were not necessarily real as being the originators of the human race on this planet. 
But in terms of the book of Revelations, uh, I would say that much of the information in there might yet prove to be correct because whoever wrote it, in the terms of the patron sense of those days, had an insight and apparently had the ability to see into the future, and they saw things in terms of warfare which have come to pass. And the terrible uh, plagues which are now coming upon us in many respects, they also saw. All right. Uh, line one, you're on the air with Al Bielik in Phoenix. Hello, Art. California. Yes. Good morning, Mr. Bielik. Yes. And two questions. First, since the U.S. government has used the transfer retrieval mechanism to... Uh, clean up a mess in 73, is it also used to silence or dissuade UFO witnesses and researchers with the men in black technique? It's very hard to hear you. Can you, uh, Art, can you repeat the question? Uh, I don't know if I can or not. Uh, let me, uh, are you familiar with the men in black technique for silencing people uh, like yourself? Yes, I am familiar with the charges and the allegations about MIBs. I've never seen one, but I do know people who have. All right. My second question is on the uh, hardware itself. Uh, doubtless refinements and advances in technology have been applied to the project hardware since the 40s. So how long will it be until uh, a stable tachyon drive fold generator will be in unclassified use? Oh, good question. That's a very good question. I don't know, really know how to answer that one. I... <clears throat> Tachyon drive system and anti-gravity drive system, they exist, at least in terms of the anti-gravity drive system. Hi, how are you doing today, Art? Fine. Where are you calling from? Uh, Gilbert, Arizona. All right. I know for a fact that uh, time machines exist, because I have one of my own. That's how I got to Ooga Booga Land. Oh. Line two, you're on the air with Al Bielik. Hi. Uh, good morning, Art. Uh, yeah. Al, uh, two questions. One, uh, what is the exact title of uh, the book that uh, I should actually look up, The Philadelphia Story, and there's another part to that? The Philadelphia <clears throat> Experiment and Other UFO Conspiracies. Oh, and other. Okay. Uh, uh, publications. It was co-authored with Brad Steiger, released in September 1990. It's still available. It's still in print. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've had some problems in the publication uh, regarding some involvement here, but how involved are the Russians uh, uh, with time and space uh, testing. All right, good question. Are they ahead of us, behind us? Where are they? I'm sorry, what was the... The, the Russians, uh, Al, where are they with these experiments now? Uh, in terms of the Philadelphia experiment, I don't know if they ever involved themselves in it. In terms of the Montauk project and that type of work, yes, they had their own parallel project. And when both ended in 83, uh, I know the U.S. one ended in 83 and 12 August. I do not know whether the Russian one did on that date, but I do know through sources that there was a scientific exchange of information hmm. as to what they found, what they accomplished, because the approaches were not identical. All right. Out of state, you're on the air with Al Bielik. Where are you calling from, please? From Brownerton, Washington. Okay. Uh, you're on a, one of those telephones. Get off it. Get on a real phone. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, I just, I've been listening for a couple of hours now, and I just wondered, is there any practical, uh, method of time travel for ordinary people, or is it only some huge government project that can do it? All right, that is a good question. Al? Well, in terms of the hardware, I don't think any ordinary people would be able to build it. In terms of the usage, anyone can use the equipment. It's not, uh, restrictive in terms of a certain type of person. But the government has a total monopoly on it, other than a few corporations who have been working with the government, and uh, it's definitely not generally available. 
The only other way around that that I can suggest is if you are very heavily into meditation and uh, that type of thing, you can find a way through meditation to <clears throat> time travel, not physically, but mentally or astrally, as they sometimes say, and you can get some of your own answers that way. This is not a physical time travel. So for the individual, it's a metaphysical answer rather than a I hardware. Particularly it is. You're not going to get the hardware, and you're not going to be able to construct it because it is quite complex. It's a fascinating answer anyway. Line two, you're on the air with Al Bielik. Hi. Hi. Um, do you have any like scientific proof about any of this? Any hard proof, Al? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, hard proof of what? Well, hard proof of any of uh, any any aspect of this story. Um, I have, but the problem is the proof that I have of this is not <clears throat> publishable because the people who can corroborate this story do not wish to be known publicly. No, no. You know, if this was a true story, ABC would pick it up in a second. You know, um, if aliens actually did exist and all of this... This would be the best story that ever hit the, you know, this would be the... Well, of course it would, Caller, but if, if the President of the United States is himself controlled, what makes you think that ABC would be exempt? Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you, in other words, if you buy the story, then you've got to buy the control factor as well, and ABC wouldn't be a... Oh, I don't necessarily know if I, if I do. I'm just... You know, I'd like to believe this more than anything. You know, I would. So would I, because I have been fascinated with and love the idea of time travel. I love it. Yeah. So, well, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Star Trek, and this is just like made my day, you know, my dream come true, but I just see no hardcore evidence of it. All right, what do you say to somebody like that, Al? He sees no hardcore evidence. Let me... Uh, wants to believe, but doubts. Let me give the gentleman uh, two insights. Number one... About a year and a half ago, uh, Unsolved Mysteries became interested in the story that I had to tell. And then at a slightly later date, uh, sightings on the West Coast became interested. Both of them dropped it like a hot potato. They refused to touch it beyond the initial inquiry and apparent interest. Uh, so far as the major networks are concerned on live television, none of them will touch it. And we know that because we have tried. And the only one who has touched it in terms of uh, television has been the cable networks because they are not governed by the same set of rules. All right. Um, let's hold it there. We've got very little time. Line three, you're on the air with Al Bielik. Yes, I have a question for Al. Uh, he says back in 1943 he traveled to 1983. Is that, That's, that is correct. Yes. And uh, I don't know. He said he mentioned that uh, he's traveled in time a couple other times. Has he ever gone beyond 1983 or how much... Further in the future, has he traveled, if he did at all? All right, thank you. Is it possible to travel into the future, Al? Yes, uh, that was done at Montauk. All of the people who were uh, new recruits, if you will, were required to take a trip into the future to the year 6037 A.D. and describe what they saw, and everyone came back with the same description. Let's hear it. I'm sorry? Let's hear it. What's, I, I want to know what's coming. <laughs> hey, the description... Uh, that 6037 A.D. that everyone came back with, because I went on the trip myself, was that you arrived in the middle of a circle, uh, what appeared to be a traffic circle from a city that no longer existed. There was a gold statue there of a horse and uh, some uh, writing on the base that was in gold, the base meaning a pedestal on which the horse was mounted. This traffic circle radiated out in various directions on roads that were still there, but all buildings were obliterated in the immediate area and the far distance you could see crumbling buildings. There was no sign of life of any kind, though there was blue skies and white clouds. 
that there's absolutely devoid of any life at that point. Oh, boy. That was what everyone came back with in the same report. All right. Uh, line one, you're on the air with Al Bielek. Hi. Hello, where are you calling from, sir? I'm from Las Vegas, and I want to thank you guys for taking my call. Uh, this is very interesting, and I'm, it's pretty believable. I just wanted to ask a question about uh, Tesla. Uh, one caller got cut off. It seems kind of interesting. Uh, is there any more information that we could get about Tesla? Oh, there's all kinds of information about Tesla if you're interested in his history. Uh, is that what you mean, caller? Um more about his study or uh, his notes or anything like that. All right. Uh, good. Yeah, that is a good question, uh, Al, very quickly. Right. What about Tesla's documentation, such as it was? There's a great deal still available through the um, museum at, uh, <clears throat> back in his Bucharest, I think it's Bucharest, back in his home store. Specific information, documentation about his patents, his work at the Colorado Springs Laboratory in 1899 and 1900. That book is available. Lists of most of his patents are available. And, of course, if you want to research the Institute of Electrical Engineers in New York, he was a regular lecturer from the period of about 1985, I'm sorry, 1885 onward. And those records all exist because a society was formed in 1884, and they've kept every book and every lecture on file at their headquarters in New York City. Al, uh, we're coming toward the end of the time. The telephones have never let up. They're still as jammed as they were. Uh, so we may at some point hope to have you back again. I, 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 I'm trying to decide what would be the... How old are you, Al? Well, according to my birth certificate as Al Bielek, I would be 66. According to my... I still can't locate birth certificate of Edward Cameron. I would be 76, 77, and it's quite really questionable what my real age is, but if we use the date from 1916, that would say that I'm about 77. All right, so you're on up there. My question is this. When you are gone, who will tell this story as you have told it, or will the story die with you? No, it will not die with me. There will be another book in preparation. I've already made many videotapes uh, across the nation uh, from lectures, from other appearances, and the information uh, will be well documented. Eventually, the government classification on this project will end on the Philadelphia experiment. Do you know when that is? Well, uh, theoretically, it has to end in August of this year because it's 50 years. And uh, the question is whether or not they can force its continuance as a classified project because now it is up to... Are there any aspects of it that are available th uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, Al? Well, you can get some information through the Freedom of Information, but the problem there is that if they release a report, if they don't cite in the interest of national security, we can't release it, it may be blacked out so there's hardly anything left except the title page and the uh, the end page and index, perhaps. Well, then hopefully you'll be with us for a while. Al, we've got to take off. You've got to get to bed. I thank you for being with us, and, and please uh, plan on doing it again, will you? Okay, fine. And well, call letters of your station again. Or... KDWN. The I've got to go, Al. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
If you've missed any part of tonight's program and you'd like to have a copy on tape, dial toll-free 1-800-917-4278 and ask for tape number 960809C. The cost is $32.50 for all five hours without commercials. That number once again, 1-800-917-4278. Sunday night on Dreamland, Chancellor Broadcasting continues our two-week-long presentation of the best of Art Bell with an encore presentation of Dreamland. We'll take you back to May 5th for Art's interview with Judy Pope Zion, an expert on prophecies of all sorts. That's this Sunday night on Dreamland. 